0: It's Sunday, September 24th, 1972, in Houston, Texas. Homicide detectives Jerry Carpenter and Joe Gamino are nearing the end of their shift when they walk into a half-empty diner. Carpenter fingers the gold coin he wears as a medallion for good luck. His taste in clothes is a little on the flashy side. Bright-colored shirts, wide lapels, tinted glasses. Before he moved to homicide, Carpenter was in vice. The joke around the precinct is he started to dress like the pimps he used to bust. Camino's the quiet one of the pair in dress as well as manner, preferring dark suits and well-pressed white shirts. The two men have only been working together for about a month. It's fair to say They don't have much in common, but their different styles of investigation complement each other nicely. A call comes in on the diner phone. The waitress beckons Carpenter over. It's the station. Joe Gamino watches his partner talking. He can tell from the body language that something big has happened. All the color drains from Carpenter's face as he nods solemnly. Carpenter hangs up and dashes back over. Some masked intruder just broke into Dr. John Hill's house and shot him to death. Camino knows immediately who Dr. John Hill is. A few years ago, his name and face were all over the papers. Hill is a famous plastic surgeon. He was accused of murdering his first wife. The top equestrian socialite Joan Robinson Hill on March 19, 1969. Case against Hill was weak, especially after the coroner ruled that Mrs. Hill died of natural causes. But Hill's behavior ever since Joan's death hadn't done him any favors. He married his mistress, a woman called Anne Kurth, just two and a half months after Joan was buried. <laughs> Sounds a bit suspicious, huh? Jones' father, the oil magnate Ash Robinson, thought so too. He was convinced that Hill had somehow killed his daughter. He kicked up enough of a stink to get his son-in-law charged with the murder. Hill was finally put on trial in February 1971, but the case collapsed, and a mistrial was declared. Not long after the handsome plastic surgeon found solace in the arms of Yet another woman, Connie Loesby became the third Mrs. Hill in June 1971. <laughs> Again, not exactly the actions of a grieving widower. A retrial was penciled for November 1972, about two months from now. But it looks like someone's gotten to Hill before he could stand trial. The two detectives run out to their unmarked blue Plymouth. A few minutes later, around 8 p.m., they reach River Oaks, the elite neighborhood where Dr. Hill lives, or, well, rather, lived. They speed down Kirby Drive, an opulent boulevard of white colonial-style mansions approached by long, curving driveways. Number 1561. The Hill family home, it's one of the grandest residents on a street of southern gothic palaces. A line of columns stretches across the immaculate facade. Inside the house, a police photographer snaps away, recording blood splatter. Somewhere, a woman is crying. Carpenter asks one of the officers who she is and is told it's the victim's wife, Connie Hill. She's one of the witnesses to the crime, along with his 12-year-old son, Robert, and his mother, Myra. All three are traumatized by their ordeal, but mostly unharmed. There'll be time to talk to them later. For now, Carpenter and Gamino's attention is focused on the body propped up against the wall the dead man's shirt is pulled up, revealing a blood-stained chest. What strikes the two detectives immediately are the strips of adhesive tape stuck over his eyes, his mouth, and his nose. Carpenter's seen this before. It's a signature method of assassination used by organized crime gangs. The victim dies of asphyxiation as the airtight tape cuts off their breathing. So could this have been a gangland hit? But as a massive frontal wound makes clear, Dr. Hill's been shot, too. It's as if the killer wanted to make doubly sure of his death. At this stage in the investigation, the detectives try to keep an open mind. Still, it's hard not to speculate. Everyone knows there's one man who hates John Hill enough to want him dead. That man is Hill's father-in-law. Ash Robinson. Joan was Robinson's beloved only daughter. In Ash Robinson's eyes, Hill was the cold-blooded monster who robbed her of her life. When Hill's trial collapsed, the old man was said to be incandescent with rage. Could he have taken the law into his own hands? It's time for Carpenter and Gamino, and us, to start looking for answers. In particular, to the one question everyone is asking. Who killed Dr. John Hill? My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Texas in the company of homicide detectives Joe Gamino and Jerry Carpenter as they investigate the brutal slaying of a noted plastic surgeon back in 1970s Houston. At first, it looks like a burglary gone wrong, but could the secret to this murder lie in the mysterious death of the doctor's first wife three years earlier? From Noiser, this is Texan Money, Texan Murder. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. The two detectives get straight down to work. The differences in their characters are matched by the opposing ways they approach the job. Camino, he's a meticulous crime scene examiner. Methodical. Analytical. Detached. Some of his fellow officers say he's the best there is. Carpenter, on the other hand, is good with people, building trust, taking witness statements, encouraging them to open up. His skill is reading people and knowing how to adapt his demeanor to whoever he's interviewing. Carpenter starts by talking to the doctor's widow, Connie. Right now, Connie is in a terrible state. Seems like she really loved the guy. Carpenter does his best to calm her down. Eventually, Connie's tears subside. She's able to give a statement, telling him that she and John had been out of town for a few days until this evening. They were supposed to be in Las Vegas for a plastic surgeon's conference. But on impulse, the two of them had decided to go to San Francisco instead. Connie tells Carpenter... How when they returned, she leapt out of the taxi and ran up to the house, eager to see her stepson, 12-year-old Robert. John's mother, Myra, had been babysitting. Connie had pushed her face up against the glass panel at the side of the door to peer inside. She saw a figure moving towards her with some kind of green hood over his head. At first, Connie had thought it was Robert just playing a prank. As the door opened, Connie laughed and said, what's this? A hand reached out and grabbed her blouse, pulling her roughly inside. Then Connie saw the gun in her assailant's other hand. This is a robbery, a man's voice barked. Connie heard the taxi drive away behind her. A moment later, Dr. Hill was there, forcing himself between Connie and the gunman. Connie ran off to raise the alarm at a neighbor's house. On the way, she heard three shots fired. (laughs) Connie begins to sob uncontrollably as she relives the horror. Realizing she needs a break, Detective Carpenter moves onto the dead man's mother, Myra Hill. But Myra's having trouble speaking, having been kicked in the throat by the intruder while she lay on the floor. However she confirms that she got a good look at the man's face. Wild eyes like great big marbles rolling about and glistening, she tells Carpenter. "Her voice is raspy. Other than that, the killer was a white male aged between 30 and 40. He had a hippie-ish appearance with dark shaggy hair and a drooping mustache. Carpenter can see that the effort of speaking is painful for her so he turns his attention to her grandson Robert who backs up Myra's description of the attacker adding that he was from Dallas Carpenter asks him how he could know that how he could tell the answer is his voice sounded like a famous Dallas football star of the day called Don Meredith while Carpenter speaks to the witness Camino scans the crime scene for physical evidence but after six or so hours of searching, doesn't have much to show. A roll of adhesive tape, which Robert confirms is the one used by the killer. Part of a cheap brown work glove stuck to one of the strips of the tape on John Hill's face. A spent 38 caliber bullet, a green pillowcase with two holes cut in it. This is the hood the killer had been wearing, which in the struggle, John Hill had managed to pull off. The pillowcase appears to be brand new, but it's such a common make that tracing it'll be impossible. The spent bullet is more promising. That could prove crucial in identifying the gun used. At 2.30 a.m., Gamino and Carpenter call it a day. The adrenaline that was keeping them going has finally run dry. As they drive away, they compare notes. Camino's view is that it's a robbery gone wrong. He bases this on what the intruder said to Connie and the fact that Hill's briefcase and wallet are missing. Carpenter nods in agreement. It doesn't look like an organized crime hit after all. Maybe it was just a straightforward home intrusion that spiraled out of control. Myra's description of the killer's wild eyes could indicate that was high on drugs it seems like the simplest explanation but as both cops know the simplest explanation (laughs) it isn't always the correct one American criminal is a new true crime podcast
1: from the studio behind American scandal and American history tellers every week you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever craven and cruel criminals fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, listeners. Did you know you can listen to new episodes of Detectives Don't Sleep a week early by subscribing to Noiser Plus? For more information, Head to Noiser.com or click the link in the episode description. The next day, Carpenter calls Myra, the victim's mother, to see if she's got her voice back. Her throat still hurts, but she's finding it easier to speak. She's got something she wants to get off her chest. When the intruder was tying her up, she tried to scare him off by saying, Dr. Hill will be here in a moment. It was meant to be a threat. The guy was unconcerned. That's all right, I'll be ready for him, he said, almost as if he was expecting Hill, almost as if Hill was the reason he was there. There's another thing, too. The day before the attack, a man had telephoned the house, asking if Dr. Hill was there. Myra told him that Hill was due back around 7.30 p.m. the following day, Sunday. The same man then called again on Sunday, Shortly before the intruder forced his way in. And now that she's found her voice, Myra has plenty to say about who she believes is behind John's murder Ash Robinson. Obviously, Robinson did not commit the murder himself. Myra and Robert would have recognized him if he had. But men like Ash Robinson, they don't do their own dirty work. Later that day, Carpenter and Camino pull up outside Ash Robinson's house and just sit there, watching. It's not likely they expect him to give himself away. They just want to let him know he's on their radar. From the movement in the curtains, it seems he does. Okay, so why not just knock on his door and talk to him? Ah, Because they know, and he knows, that in Houston, a man like Ash Robinson is pretty much untouchable. Unless you've got cast iron proof, don't even bother ringing the doorbell. To understand Ash Robinson's power, you have to understand the city that gave it to him. Houston is built on oil money with more refineries and petrochemical plants per square mile than anywhere else in the world. And arguably, more billionaires, too. As the 1970s got underway, Houston's skyline began to get progressively higher, reflecting the growing wealth of the oil companies. Born in the closing years of the 19th century, David Ashton Robinson came up with the old generation of Texan oilmen, those who made their fortunes at the height of the gusher age. They were men of the earth, with gnarled fingers and visionary gaze. The early oil industry was a brutal business. Death was ever-present, either through accidents or the settling of scores. This was the world that Ash Robinson moved and thrived in. Wealth brought power, naturally, the power to influence politicians, and intimidate public officials. When his daughter Joan died, Robinson kept up a relentless campaign, bullying and conjoling the DA into charging John Hill with her murder. Robinson was convinced Hill had killed Joan, and he had the force of personality to persuade others. So, did Dr. Hill kill his first wife? It's a good question, but unfortunately, There's really no definitive answer. There were three separate autopsies carried out, producing three different results. The first pathologist to examine her body believed she died of pancreatitis. But then after conducting his own examination, the coroner disagreed, citing hepatitis instead. Even a forensic pathologist brought in by Ash Robinson failed to come to a conclusion about the cause of death, saying that Joan Robinson Hill died as the result of an acute inflammation of some sort, the origin of which I cannot determine. There was simply no evidence of foul play, which made the case against Hill difficult to prove. The DA's office had to resort to charging him with the highly unusual crime of murder by omission, negligent homicide, in other words. The argument was that he was her physician as well as her husband. He should have taken better care of her. A number of incidents were cited. For example, when he finally accepted that Joan needed emergency care, he drove straight past the world-beating Texas Medical Center, opting instead to take her to a much smaller and less well-equipped hospital twice as far away, even driving his car at a snail's pace. The prosecution's case was that this showed a callous indifference that contributed to Joan's eventual death from natural causes. Bizarrely, their problem arose when Hill's second wife, Ann Kurth, claimed in court that he had confessed to her that he poisoned Joan. Now, while this might sound good for the prosecution, that simply wasn't what Hill was charged with. Plus, there was precisely zero evidence to back it up. Her testimony led to the case falling apart. Ash Robinson was assured there'd be a retrial, but there seemed to be little appetite in the DA's office for what was likely to be another costly failure. Robinson could read the writing on the wall. The lawyers were shaping up to kick the Joan Robinson Hill case into the long grass. So, could Robinson in his frustration, have hired a gunman to mete out Texan justice. Now, there's just one problem. Everyone who knows the family agrees that Ash Robinson doted on his grandson, Robert. Just doesn't make sense that he would inflict such a traumatic ordeal on him, even potentially endangering the boy's life. Still though, maybe there's something in it. Maybe Robinson's hatred of his son-in-law outweighed his love for his grandson. In week one of the investigation, Carpenter and Gamino work all the hours they can. Gamino goes back over the crime scene, relentlessly searching for any clues he might have missed. Carpenter leans on his informants. With a murder as audacious as this, somebody's gotta know something. Before the week's out, one of Carpenter's snitches comes up with a name for him. Lila Paulus. Now, you're going to want to remember that name because it becomes important later in this investigation. Paulus is known to the vice squad as an alleged madam. The informant doesn't say for definite that she's had anything to do with Hill's murder, just that she knows people who do this kind of thing. But before the detectives can get around to interviewing her, they get their first major breakthrough. An eight-year-old child finds a briefcase in some bushes not far from the murder house. Carpenter and Gamino hot-footed over. Medical documents inside the case identify it as belonging to Dr. John Hill. Carpenter scours the ground nearby in the hope of discovering Hill's wallet. Instead, he spies a metallic cylinder sticking out of the wet mud. The detective reaches down and pulls up a 38 caliber snub-nosed revolver. Carpenter calls out to his partner. Hey, Joe, I think we just got lucky. The gun is taken off for testing at the ballistics lab. After three days, the result comes in. They found the murder weapon. It turns out to be registered to one Dr. Oren Staves. The two detectives are intrigued. Another doctor? Could Hill's death have nothing to do with Ash Robinson after all? Maybe some kind of professional grudge has escalated into murder. Carpenter and Gamino drive over to Dr. Stave's practice and show him the gun. Yes, it's his, but he claims it was stolen from him about six months ago by a sex worker called Dusty. And now, He's never heard of Dr. John Hill. The detectives are inclined to believe him. There's something about his candor when he's boasting about his frequent use of sex workers that gives his story the ring of truth. Carpenter pushes Dr. Staves for Dusty's real name. The doctor's not sure, but he thinks it might be Marsha McKittrick. Carpenter runs a check through criminal records. Sure enough, a 22-year-old sex worker called Marsha McKittrick had been arrested in Houston in 1971. Marsha's mugshot comes in. Her file gives an address for her parents. Carpenter and Gamino waste no time in driving out to the Houston suburb where they live. Marsha's mother, a nursing assistant, tells a sad but familiar story. She's basically a sweet, loving girl. Somewhere along the line, she just got mixed up with the wrong people. She elaborates that these new friends of hers got her hooked on heroin. Carpenter believes Marcia's addiction may be relevant to the case. He knows people suffering from addiction will sometimes do anything for money, even murder. But none of the witnesses to Hill's murder mentioned seeing a woman. The person who pulled the trigger... Was a man. The question is, what, if any, is the killer's connection to Marcia? Given the world in which she lives, the most likely answer is, he's her pimp. Carpenter calls in some favors from his informants. He discovers that Marcia recently hooked up with a new pimp. Some guy by the name of Bobby. Bobby V something. It's not much to go on, but it's something. Months pass. We're now into 1973. Camino and Carpenter are tireless in their search for Marsha McKittrick and Bobby V. They drive thousands of miles all around Texas, following up every lead, but without any luck. Then, in the spring of 1973, Camino and Carpenter's luck changes. One of Carpenter's informants Gives him Bobby V's last name. Vandever. Carpenter checks the records. He discovers Vandever is a known felon with a record for burglary, including one outstanding charge for possession of burglary tools in Houston. They track him down and bring him in for questioning. In a featureless interrogation room, Carpenter and Gamino sit down across the table from Bobby Vandiver. It's the first time they've come face-to-face with the man they believe killed John Hill. Vandiver's body language is arrogant. He has a cocky smirk on his face as he nods in sarcastic greeting. (laughs) The two cops' different personalities come out in how they interact with Vandiver. Gamino's polite, respectful, making sure to call him Mr. Vandiver. He plays it by the book. Carpenter, on the other hand, talks to Vandiver as an equal. He calls him Bobby. They talk about sex workers they both known, though in Carpenter's case, always as an arresting officer. They swap stories and laugh at each other's jokes. One of the names Carpenter drops into the conversation is Dusty. Vandiver blanks it. Maybe he knows her as Marcia McKittrick. Vandever shakes his head. For a while, Detective Carpenter plays along, continuing to regale Vandever with anecdotes from his time in Vice. Then, when Vandever has dropped his guard just about as low as it can get, Carpenter hits him with the big one. His expression becomes deadpan. His voice, cold, detached, as suddenly, out of nowhere, he asks, did you kill Dr. John Hill on September 24, 1972, here in Houston? Vandiver protests his innocence. He was in Dallas that day and has witnesses who can confirm it. Carpenter suggests that if that's the case, Vandever will have no objection to taking part in a police lineup. That evening, Vandiver fidgets nervously as he stands in the middle of a lineup. John Hill's mother, Myra, is led along by Jerry Carpenter. She looks searchingly into each man's face. The moment of her ordeal comes back to her, but she's not afraid. Nah, no, she's angry. She stops in front of Vandiver and whispers into Carpenter's ear, That's the man. There's no doubt in my mind. The detectives take their suspect back into the interrogation room. Vandover maintains his innocence. So, how does he explain Myra picking him out? She's crazy, he says. Camino goes over what they already have. They know Marcia McKittrick, aka Dusty, provided the murder weapon. They also know Vandover was Marcia's pimp even though he denies it. Camino explains how the legal system works in cases like this, where there are multiple defendants. It's all a matter of who gets down with us first. When and if we get Marsha and she gets down, then it'll be rough on you. But Vandiver remains tight-lipped. Then Carpenter has an idea. It's a long shot, but... With Vandiver holding out, what does he have to lose? He takes a pencil and scribbles two dots on the desk, about six inches apart. Here's you, he says, pointing to the first dot. He writes Bobby over it. Then he points to the other dot. And here is Dr. John Hill. Carpenter then draws two more dots in between the first two. He connects Bobby's dot to the one next to it with a line. This is Marsha McKittrick, he says. His pencil hovers over the final unidentified dot. Then suddenly, a name that came up early in the investigation pops into his head. He presses the point of the pencil down hard until it breaks. And this is Lila Paulus. Vandiver is visibly taken aback. Oh wow, he says, "You know her name?" Throwing out Paula's name was a complete bluff. All that Carpenter knew was that Marcia was a sex worker, and Lila Paulus was alleged to be a madam. So there's a good chance their paths had crossed. But the bluff works. After a couple of hours sweating, Bobby asks to see the D.A. In exchange for a lighter sentence, Vandiver spills everything. He admits to being Marcia's pimp. Through Marcia, he met Lila Paulus and even stayed at her house several times. One day, Paulus offered him $5,000 to kill Dr. Hill. Marcia would act as the getaway driver. In his statement, Vandiver says, she told me the contract was on a doctor who had killed his wife and that it was the wife's father who was wanting him dead. Vandever doesn't mention Ash Robinson by name, but it's clear that that's who he's referring to. So that's it, right? The case is wrapped up. They've got Vandiver's confession. He's given them two of his accomplices and all but names the man who ordered the hit. Not so fast. There's an inconvenient Texan law that a defendant cannot be convicted solely on an accomplice's statement. It has to be corroborated by other independent evidence. The detective's next task is to find that evidence. And meticulous detective Joe Gamino is the man to do it. Gamino's received records of Lila Paulus' long-distance calls from Southwestern Bell Telephone. He takes Vandiver through them, identifying a number of calls made shortly before the day of the murder. Vandiver confirms that they are to airlines and hotels checking up on Hill's movements when he was supposed to be in Las Vegas for the plastic surgeons' conference. Vandiver and Marcia even traveled to Las Vegas themselves to carry out the hit there, but came back to Houston when they realized Hill and his wife weren't at their hotel. Now, the detectives have everything they need to go after Lila Paulus. On April 25th, 1973, Paulus is arrested by a posse of nine armed lawmen. Jerry Carpenter arms himself with an AR-15 Colt rifle, the weapon favored by American troops in Vietnam. Some will say that the show of force is excessive, designed to intimidate Paulus into complying. If that is the intention, it doesn't work. Lila Paulus denies everything. She doesn't know who Marcia McKittrick is, and she's never met Ash Robinson. Well, that's her story, anyhow. However, a search of her house turns up a slew of incriminating evidence, leaking Paulus to Marcia McKittrick. For instance, Scrawled on a piece of paper is a long distance number beneath the name Dusty. Now, you'll remember that was Marcia McKittrick's professional name. They also find the number of a hotel that Marcia was known to have used for sex work and a letter written by Marcia dated August 6th, 1972. That's not all. In Paulus' bag, detectives find a slip of paper with a phone number written on it which turns out to be an unlisted number belonging to Ash Robinson. Camino and Carpenter confer with Bob Bennett, the assistant DA handling the case. The three men decide to go unannounced to Robinson's house. I know they don't have anything concrete on the wealthy oil man, but maybe they can spook him into giving himself away. It's close to midnight when they reach Robinson's mansion. Ash Robinson himself opens the door, wearing his pajamas. Camino gets straight to the point. We have just arrested your friend, Lila Paulus, for the murder of John Hill. Then after a beat, he adds, and we think you might have something to do with it. Robinson smiles, unconcerned. He recognizes a bluff when he sees one. They can get nothing out of him apart from, well, boys, I wouldn't know anything about that. It's time for them to go. On the way out, Robinson threatens to sue them for slander if they repeat their unfounded allegations. With Lila Paulus refusing to cooperate, the detectives don't have anything other than circumstantial evidence linking him to the murder the DA's office decides that it's not enough to charge a powerful man like Ash Robinson. The next link in the chain is Marsha McKittrick. After months on the run, living a chaotic lifestyle of heroin addiction and sex work, Marsha is finally arrested on September 21, 1973, in Dallas. Gamino and Carpenter drive 260 miles to pick her up. On the way back, Marcia passes out in the back of the detective's Plymouth. She's in the throes of drug withdrawal. There are dried vomit stains down the front of her dress. Her face is puffy. Her makeup is smudged. Her hair is a tangled mess. Carpenter can't help feeling sorry for her. the detectives' interviewer in the same bland interrogation room where Bobby Vandiver confessed. Her statement corroborates his, but there's one difference. She actually names Ash Robinson as the party who stumped up $5,000 to have Dr. John Hill murdered. According to Marcia, Lila Paulus acted as the intermediary in the deal. There's only one problem with her confession. At that time, she's a heroin addict, desperate for her next fix. Can anything she says be believed? But there's so many details that are consistent with Vandiver's statement, details she would have no way of knowing unless she was in on the murder plot. The detectives in the DA's office are convinced her testimony will hold up in court. We're still in September, 1973 the date for Bobby Vandiver's trial is approaching. The trial at which he will plead guilty and return for the lighter sentence he's been promised. But then, the trial unexpectedly gets pushed back to April the next year. It's at this point that assistant DA Bob Bennett makes a fatal blunder. Bennett's built up a good rapport with Bobby Vandiver. He trusts him. So much so that Vandever is out on bond, living under a false name in a Houston motel with his girlfriend, Vicky. He tells Bennett, I won't run, Bob. I think you know me pretty good by now. I just want to get my business straight so Vicky and I can live together someday. When Vandever's trial is delayed, he begs Bennett to allow him to go to Dallas to sort out some family business. He promises he'll stay out of trouble. And against his better judgment, Bennett agrees. Maybe it's the strain of all this waiting, but in April 1974, just before his trial is scheduled, Vandiver breaks his promise to Bennett and goes on the lam. Then, on May 13th, 1974, while hiding out in the town of Longview, Texas, Vandiver pulls a gun on an armed police officer who's attempting to arrest him. The officer fires in self-defense, and Vandever is killed. Bobby Vandever was the man who shot Dr. John Hill dead. He was also a crucial witness in the wider case surrounding Hill's death. His statement was the first piece of evidence that named his accomplices and implicated Ash Robinson. His death is a serious blow for the detectives. When Jerry Carpenter hears the news, he can't help wondering if Ash Robinson is somehow behind it. Did he hire a law enforcement officer to gun down Vandiver before he could testify in his trial? But the officer who killed him checks out as a decent cop. A more likely explanation occurs to Carpenter. Bobby Vandever had simply had enough. He was tired of running, tired of a life that was going nowhere but to jail. It looks like a suicide by cop. The trial for Marcia McKittrick for murder and Lila Paulus for accomplice to murder begins in October 1974. Both are convicted. McKittrick, who has cooperated with the prosecution, gets out on parole after five years of a 10-year sentence. Paulus never confesses to her part in the crime and refuses to incriminate Ash Robinson. She is sentenced to 35 years and dies in prison. Largely thanks to her silence, Ash Robinson remains at liberty. It's a frustrating outcome for Detective Camino and Carpenter, but the lawyers in the DA's office have decided there isn't enough evidence to convict Robinson. Protected by a ring of expensive lawyers, Robinson is not even called to give evidence at the McKittrick Paulus trial. Instead, he arranges for a physician to tell the court that he's too sick to appear. The suggestion is that he could drop down from a heart attack at any moment. The judge in the McKittrick Paulus case is skeptical but it seems he's powerless to force Robinson to attend. He's even on record as saying, it reminds me of that movie, The French Connection. It seems to be the kind of situation where the higher ups insulate themselves and the little people get shot or go to the penitentiary. One person who believes Ash Robinson was responsible for Dr. John Hill's murder is Robinson's own grandson, Robert. In 1977, together with his stepmother Connie and Grandmother Myra, he takes out a civil lawsuit against Robinson for the wrongful death of his father. Robert is 17 and estranged from his grandfather. Once again, Ash Robinson protests his innocence and is cleared. Robert's own view on his family's tragic history is revealed in a United Press International article in 1985. Ash gives lots of people the impression he's a charming old man, a grandfather, who loves his grandson. Well, I'm wise to that image. If I saw him face to face, I'd probably say something like, Why'd you kill my father? Why'd you ruin our lives? The murder of Dr. John Hill is Joe Gamino's last case as a homicide detective. He leaves the department and starts a new assignment, training rookie cops. Maybe it's disillusionment over not being able to nail Ash Robinson. Or maybe he just wants to bring on future generations of detectives who will be as meticulous as he is. At the time of the mckittrick Paulus trial, Detective Carpenter hears that there's a gangland contract out on him. He's advised to keep a low profile. That's not his style. He attends the trial every day, daring as would-be assassins to do their worst. They never do. Carpenter transfers from Homicide to the Special Crimes Unit in 1976 and retires from the force in 1991 after 30 years as a cop. The murder of Dr. John Hill will remain the most memorable and high-profile case in his long career. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, we head to Los Angeles for a twisty game of cat and mouse between a patient DA's investigator and a slick international fraudster. In 1997, Detective George Mueller is on the trail of a ruthless and potentially violent con man called Christopher Rokencore. With none of Rokencore's wealthy victims willing to give evidence against him, Detective Mueller has to find a creative way to bring the criminal to justice. But it seems that Rokencore is always one step ahead. Every time the detective gets close to catching him, the elusive con man slips out of his reach. And when Rokincor calls Mueller to taunt him, he crosses a line that makes the detective more determined than ever, to catch the king of La La Land. That's next week on Detectives Don't Sleep.